Welcome back to Butter With That, a movies podcast where some of your favorite friends from Philadelphia come together to talk about all things movies. I'm joined today by Christine, Dave, and Sam. We've got a full crew today uh, diving into a brand new theme. We just covered kind of a first for us. Uh, We had Sam's roommates pick our last four movies in a theme called Roommate Revenge, which was a lot of fun. We talked about some really interesting and some really good movies. Um, and <laughs> I'm really excited to, and actually our last episode, 1917 is a really good bridge kind of episode to the theme that we're diving into over the next four weeks, which is biopics. We are going to be diving into four very different <laughs> approaches to making a biographical feature film. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to check in with all of my buttery co-hosts to see if anybody's been watching anything new or, Let's check anything out that's uh, interesting. Well, on the subject of biopics, on Roku TV, there is Weird, the Al Yankovic story, Mm -hmm. which I saw, and uh, it's a delight. Uh, If you're a Weird Al fan, you can can do no wrong by watching it. Uh, He had a big hand in writing the movie, uh, so it, throughout, while tackling familiar territory as far as musical biopic tropes, dissects them and subverts them in uniquely uh yankovic ways that uh make it a really fun watch so i i would definitely recommend it uh it's kind of a who's who of comedy actors uh through the funnier die camp so there's a lot of those folks involved and uh i would say that uh whether you're a fan or not you'll have a great time but if you are a fan uh it's one not to miss how appropriate that that movie released right as we're uh, kind of starting or just after, uh, just before we start our new theme. So I, I'm really excited to check that out soon. You know who reminded me that they are a big, weird Al Yankovic fan? Uh, Alana. Alana had a list of men that um, they find attractive. And Weird Al Yankovic, it was there. Uh, early 2000s we're talking about. Alana is one of my favorite people of all time. Um, love this. Thank you, Alana. <laughs> I love that too. Has anybody checked out uh, anything else in the other movies? I watched Barbarian. Oh. I chose I chose you know, a weekend in which both my housemates were out of town, so I was alone in my house. Oh no! At night, it was a movie. I was just like, let's just get in bed, watch a movie about a spooky house. It was it was enjoyable. Um, don't have a lot to say about it, but you know, looks like I guess maybe we're entering a uh, a long assance. Maybe I don't know. Most people hate Justin Long. I guess I don't have strong opinions about him. Uh, and he was he was fun to watch. I He's think he was very good, good at Barbarian. Movie. Yeah, yeah. I haven't been. I don't think I've watched a new movie recently. But I, I um I did start uh, Vatican Girl, the newer. Had a true crime documentary on Netflix, uh, produced by the same team who did Don't Fuck With Cats a few years ago. What? Wait, what is Vatican Girl? So in 1983, Emanuela Orlandi gets, uh, she, her and her family live in Vatican City. Her family works for the Vatican, but they're late. Uh. And so she, uh, while she's at school, just a few streets down, she gets kidnapped. And she's potentially like this kidnapping potentially involves either an international conspiracy or a papacy conspiracy. Um, so it's kind of very lots of tendrils going into many different societies and places and governments. It's very fascinating. We're only halfway through uh, two or four episodes, but very like the production quality is super high. It's a really fascinating story. You meet like a lot of her family members um, and it's a really interesting story so far. So I'm kind of curious to see. Uh, very curious to see how it wraps up. It sounds like a superhero movie, <laughs> but Vatican it's Girl? clearly not. <laughs> no, and I guess that's what they call like they called her the Vatican Girl because because she lives within the walls of Vatican City. Cool. Well, with uh, without further ado, let's dive into our new theme, which is biopic. Now, the movie that inspired our choice for this theme is actually coming at the very end of the cycle so i won't spoil but we're going to end biopic 
our biopic theme with. But today, we're going to be talking about uh, Catch Me If You Can, a 2002 Spielberg-directed feature um, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. This is a Spielberg movie that I always forget that he directed. Um, there's a few of those, and so I think it's interesting that this is a project that he ended up directing as we go through the episode. Happy to go into some behind the scenes of what led to Spielberg directing this picture because it originally was not supposed to be him. Uh, so released on Christmas Day in 2002, it follows Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays Frank Abagnale Jr., Tom Hanks, who plays an FBI agent, um, Carl Handratty. And it's allegedly, the, for folks who are unfamiliar, the true story of Frank Abagnale Jr., who, before his 19th birthday, successfully conned millions of dollars worth of checks as a Pan Am pilot. Uh, a doctor and a legal prosecutor. Uh, an FBI agent uh, makes it his mission to put him behind bars, but Frank not only eludes capture, uh, and he revels, but he revels in the pursuit. So before we go any further, has uh, have any of my co-hosts seen Catch Me If You Can before? Re- kind of funny that we're approaching the 20th anniversary of this movie releasing, which was unintentional, but um, a nice coincidence. I would have seen this one when it came out and uh, was impressed then. Uh, I remain impressed now. Very, very fun. Very good movie. Yeah, I, I too saw it back in the, the day. Um, I think I remember only really watching it at once and being like, hey, it's Leonardo DiCaprio. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, I saw it when, when around the time it came out, I think. This was actually the first movie I watched in the pandemic. So like once oh. things really had shut down, I was with some friends and we were all together and we were like traveling together. And then the pandemic happened. And so we were like suddenly together and we're like, what movie should we watch? <laughs> and it was catch me if you can. So I will always associate this movie with that moment of like terror and sadness, but being with friends and never knowing when I would see them. Yeah. Or like, you know, it's like we would go our separate ways and not know like when we were going to be in the same place. And so I have sort of like emotional memories of this movie, but then rewatching it, I was like, yeah, it's just like a fun romp. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyhow, that's yeah my relationship with Catch Me If You Can. A rare film where all of us have seen it before uh, coming into the episode, which is always interesting. I don't remember the first time I saw this movie, but I remember the poster, like the DVD cover being like very iconic at like Blockbuster or Hollywood video of like, you know, the blurred images of Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio chasing each other. And so this is probably my second or third time watching it. And I don't know. I'm really interested to kind of do a deep dive. We've got a lot of themes of family dynamics, especially father-son relationships, duality of roles, 60s nostalgia, a cat and mouse game. So I'm really excited um, to kind of dive deep into all of that. But for kind of turning it back over to you guys, what was it like revisiting? Dave, you said that you still kind of admire this movie. It sounds like you still enjoyed it. So what was it like revisiting? Catch me if you can. What were some kind of maybe big highlights for you or things that you enjoyed? Uh, this kind of second or third or multiple time around. It's hard to say that I've got a lot of notes on this movie. Uh, this is one that just sort of invites you in and, and it walks you pretty aptly through the the entire trajectory of the, ser- the story, even though it is a nonlinear narrative and does jump back and forth in time. But it's all very digestible, the way that it's structured. The performances are... On, on on all fronts, really, kind of knockouts, uh, especially, of course, the two leads, Hanks and DiCaprio, especially seeing DiCaprio this young and taking on a role of, of this kind. Uh, I mean, you know, we uh, after Titanic or uh, The Beach, but um, but, you know, it's it seems to be this kind of middle ground where he's 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 flexing a little bit more. I mean, Titanic, you know, he's it's an iconic role, but. This feels a little bit more immersed in character for him, a little bit more uh, engaged on his part and, and really reading the room and the assignment. And at the helm, Spielberg, you know, who has the Spielberg sheen over this entire movie. You know, it it, it feels immediately like it, it, it's funny, Connor, that you mentioned that, like, it's one of the lesser known Spielberg ones because it, it for me is, too. But the moment that I put it on, I was just like, 
Yeah, it screams Spielberg in terms of its direction, in terms of its lighting, in terms of its blocking, in terms of its acting. It's all just, it's it's a perfect package and presentation of why he's such a respected director, especially, uh, you know, with a, a great ensemble cast at his disposal. So, uh, yeah, on the whole, um, really appreciated it more this time, although I did really like it the first time. So I think this is one that uh, really grows on you, at, le- at least based on my two viewings so far. I'm going to push back on the lighting. I got to say, when I was watching rewatching this movie, I I was like, does Spielberg do this in every movie? Or it looks like a CVS photo gloss filter. Yes. And I just, <laughs> I was like, am I just in a mood where I'm not like, like liking this? Does Spielberg do this all the time? I just, I was not all for the like, yeah, hazy light thing that he had going through this whole movie. But I guess when I say that it's Spielbergian, it is uh, informed in terms of how it is shot to accentuate that as a representative coloring of a time period in a way, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's not typical just to the... his, his, his movies in general, but a knowledge of what he's shooting as far as representing era and uh, feel and atmosphere, maybe. Yeah. But it is distracting. Yeah. I agree. It is. It's very <laughs> soft light. It looks as though every room is bathed in smoke. So it, 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 yeah, it does stand out in that way. I agree. Yeah. Or, I was like, I feel like I'm at the kiosk in CBS and I'm choosing my fil- like my photo options <laughs> in 2004. <laughs> And I think that's designed to kind of add to the sentimental feel of this very nostalgic mm-hmm. um, film, which is, you know, I think we'll probably touch on some production notes later, but a very interesting and I think apt observation, Christine. Sam, how about you? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, what I think I like most is that it was a movie that I could pay attention to, zone out, come back in and still feel like I knew what was going on. Even though I I hadn't seen it since it first came out, I still feel like there's so many scenes that really like ingrained itself into my brain and into mm-hmm. my retinas. The soaking of the Pan Am airplanes to take that logo off and put it on the checks. When I saw it again, I was like, yeah. I so clearly remember that. So it's fascinating the the how this movie resonates and um, the the longevity some things have. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really striking and iconic visuals and moments in this film, which as someone who's only seen it also probably just once before, um, a lot of moments like really stuck with me. It's like, oh yeah, the moment, especially uh, one that stuck with me is poor you know when, when frank's about to get caught and there he's like in the check making machine and like all the checks are flying around that's the scene yeah <laughs> um so i thought this was a really kind of turned out i think to be a great way to kick off our biopic theme because this is sort of in my opinion one of the most biopicy of hollywoody biopicy kind of movies you can have you have the base on a true story you have the gorgeous lead like you know like handsome leads and really hollywoodizing uh, and it's a really compelling dynamic story that at the end of the day is total bullshit <laughs> like the real frank abignell jr did almost nothing that he says he does that he lectured about uh he never worked for the fbi in any way shape or form uh he dressed as a pilot briefly for like two months um, he forged checks for one year in the late seventies and he claims to have only been arrested once in his life, uh, when the person, you know, the surrogate handwriting character uh, in real life, um, arrested him, but he was arrested like a dozen times throughout his life. So nobody really questioned his story throughout the past couple decades, a few journalists here or there, but under, you know, in the past 10 years, his story has been put under a lot of scrutiny. So I think it's interesting that this, that Frank Hollywoodized his own story and then Spielberg and Hollywood Hollywoodized it even further. So I think it's a really great and really interesting example of based on a true story, quote unquote, uh, what does that even really mean? And there's so many movies that are like this um, that have been made probably as long as Hollywood, you know, filmmaking has been around uh, feature like filmmaking and making movies about people's lives. 
So I just thought, I guess I just wanted to kick it off with what, how do you guys kind of feel about the biopic genre in general? And what do you think some, you know, I guess, how does Catch Me If You Can maybe play into some of those tropes or your thoughts on how, where Catch Me If You Can fits into uh, the pantheon of biopic features? This is, I think, a unique scenario where it is a portrait of a career con man. And it is based largely on his autobiography. And the autobiography of a con man obviously is inherently an unreliable narrator, which makes it kind of makes a lot of diagenic excuses for uh, heightening things, for for not being true, for it being uh, an imagined version of a life. And I think that the way that's, yeah, Spielberg, as you said, Hollywoodizes it. Like, it, it, it has that Spielberg quality of, like, all these characters are believable characters rooted in a reality, but they're a heightened, like, Hollywood version of a person. Like, every individual role feels not convincing you're or or not convincing in a way that like you know that as you would encounter an actual person it's it's characters in a movie and you're consciously aware of that um but the backdrop of that being that it is based on uh, an infamously unreliable narrator uh, a career unreliable narrator only kind of adds to that that atmosphere which i think is is one of the few instances where you can excuse inaccuracy or or uh, uh the muddying or or heightening of a telling legitimately in a biopic because it is a biopic at at the core of a con man so it only kind of makes sense that it would be hollywoodized in that spielbergian way there's like an interesting meta layer kind of going on with the telling of the story which i think is really interesting i'm now fascinated i did not know the newer controversy or or questioning of the memoir autobiography that this was based on. So now I'll be deep in the research after we film or record this episode. To, to not go on, I don't want to go too deep on a tangent on that, because I, I don't think that really fully relates to talking about the movie, but the YouTuber Kendall Ray, who does a lot of true crime, she has a really great video about um, Frank Abagnale Jr. that for those listening or my co-hosts, I definitely recommend checking out. It's a really thorough summary of um, his life and his lies. I adore Kendall Ray. I'm so happy that you brought her into this conversation. But I also just really love any time pointing things out for what they really are or, or, or aren't. And I think anytime we talk about biopics, uh, particularly when the, the the person it's about is involved, you're always you always have to be like, how how true is this actually and 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 what is the truth and truth is just so so relative anyway so i don't know connor um what a fantastic pick to kick off biopic month and one question that i have when kind of thinking about biopics in general some ideas that we touched on in our 1917 episode check that out um what at what point does truth stop mattering uh, if it's serving a larger goal within a movie. I think Spielberg, one of his greatest strengths, and we talked about him before on the podcast, um, is bringing, like, fleshing out emotional depth to his characters. I th- there's really a moment for a lot of our principal cast to to get a moment of, of you know, where you see some interiority. Uh, I think of the moment where Frank, I mean, Frank gets a lot of screen time, but one moment at the end where he escapes out of the plane very dramatic climbs out the toilet down through like the the um landing gear the, the tires and runs to find his mom who has moved on and created a new family with the man that she cheated on his father with and there's a, a long moment a beat where you hold on him just looking into the window and there's a little girl like the family that you know he could the life that he could have had that was taken away from him and so i think at the end of the day you know frank abagnale jr massive con man and liar doesn't really matter i in my opinion for the story that we get the rich story that we get in here and so i think biopics bring up this interesting idea of like where where and when does truth kind of stop mattering if we're serving kind of a greater thematic or emotional kind of purpose in the film i was wondering while watching it would i care about the story if i knew that it was completely fictional 
And I have to say, I don't know if I really would have been as excited about watching this character if I didn't, if it wasn't tethered to some ounce of reality. Because for me watching it, part of the fun of watching it is to see how he got away with certain things, how he forged checks, how he exploited some banking practice. You know, he like found these little loopholes in like real systems to be able to get what he needed. And I, and I don't, I think if some screenwriter just wrote this, I don't know if I would have really been as drawn to the story as I guess I am because it's some way connected to somebody's real experience. And I don't know if that's a fault of like the screenplay itself or just like my own, like where my own brain goes, but I don't like, I don't know if it can hold up. I don't know. Actually I'm on, I'm uncertain. And I think that's, I think with biopics, there's a lot of marketing around based on a true story. I mean, how many, probably at this point, like hundreds of thousands of programs have advertised based with TV or movies, et cetera, based on a true story. And I think there's something in us to get caught up in the storytelling of, I mean, if we go back to like ancient mythologies, you know, believing in these larger than life figures and repeating these stories over and over when, you know, multiple truths really can exist in somebody's life. And the version that they portray is maybe an idealized one, but probably still value and maybe in a lot of cases of kind of following that. So I think it's, it's complicated. And I think that's a really interesting part to think about with biopics. And I think Catch Me If You Can is an interesting example of the, um, you know, thinking about the truth of a situation and how that interacts, you know, with our engagement or enjoyment of a biopic or something that's based on someone's real life. It also kind of begs the question too, of like, you know, uh, most storytelling, a lot of storytelling, at least a lot of, uh, cinematic storytelling is based in archetype, which, of course, we understand to be a transcultural, uh, almost like a, a you know a pantheon of like human experience and uh, and and character whittled down into digestible um, symbols or or roles. But this sort of calls into question how accurate something like that can be, because like at the end of the day, if you're going to tell the completely true story. A lot of times a completely true story isn't as interesting as when you invoke the story structural, the structural story function of archetypes and how if you are going to take liberties with a true story to inject uh, drama or structure through archetypes and through familiar tropes and stuff like that, it's probably a pretty great opportunity to do that in this case with an un- already unreliable narrator. Like this is someone who is self mythologized and presented themselves almost in like an archetypal way. So it translates pretty naturally uh, in a way that I feel like the, the, the nitty gritty of the truth isn't as interesting or necessary because this is someone who themselves a- as a human being and as the figure this is based on and the quote unquote true story this is based on self mythologized and created a whole presentation for themselves that is not quite their true selves and and so on so i think that yeah you'll find fewer opportunities within the biopic genre to apply those kind of tropes in a way that doesn't uh devalue the truth uh by contrast to this movie so it's interesting in that way it's kind of a kind of really unique in that regard and i think there's something very relatable about our desire to create our own mythologies about ourselves to escape certain scenarios or situations. Uh, Frank is becomes a child of divorce when he's, I believe, 16, 17. Uh, and so he, and you know, as the film depicts, he kind of falls into this con man life as a way to escape, you know, the turbulent troubles that uh, exist at home. And so I think, you know, um, you know, we create our own mythologies, tell our own truths to ourselves and express those, I think, every day. And I think that's and I think what's you know kind of bringing it back to the film, what Spielberg draws out are these really, really great connections between characters, fleshing out motivations, um, really providing into a sense of interiority and what's kind of going on behind these characters for what could be very flashy. I mean, there's lots of nostalgia bait, but it kind of feels like it all serves a thematic and emotional thematic purpose. 
Even so much so that one of the pivotal moments of this movie is Tom Hanks's character, um, Carl. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl, yeah, Carl expressing. Carl and Raddy. Yeah, Carl expressing. And Raddy. <laughs> Five uh, minutes. The, the Boston <laughs> accent. It's me, Tom Hanks. But him expressing, like, you know, I've given, like, he, 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 there reaches a point within their dynamic, Frank and Carl, in this cat and mouse game where. Carl even admits, like, like uh, yes, I wear my wedding ring, but I'm long since divorced. I told you my daughter was this age, but that was however many years ago. Like, and he says something to the effect of, like, sometimes it's better to live the lie, which not only ties into Frank as a con man, but ties into the whole concept of this being a biopic. Is like, sometimes it's more comfortable to embrace the fiction that is rooted in reality than the reality itself because it's more satisfying and more interesting or, or in Tom Hanks's character's case, perhaps more comforting. And what a great line to hang an entire movie on an entire plot an entire like characters of like, it's more comfortable to live the lie. Like that's real drama (laughs) right there. You know, if we're going big picture, Aristotle, you know, like 30,000 foot view of what drama is and what good storytelling is. That's a really good thematic hook to kind of build into your screenplay and to build into your story. And it's just so funny because so often when we've done true stories for our movie picks, we're always like, you know, I wanted a little bit more or I wish they would have taken this further and done this. So, yeah, there is something there that sometimes fiction is a little bit more fun than fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, what is that saying? Um, you don't print the truth, print the legend or whatever. Something to that effect, yeah. Well, I think that was all a really great setup for what biopics are, kind of what, why we're drawn to them. I mean, tons of them come out every year. We've talked about tons of them on the podcast already. Um, and we've touched on a lot of really compelling points and moments that Catch Me If You Can goes through. And kind of the first part that I wanted to dive into is at the core of this movie is really examining the layers of a father-son relationship, um, whether that's Frank Jr. with Frank Sr., who is played uh, by Christopher Walken. Totally forgot he was in this movie, but he is at peak Walken. How could you um, forget that I'm in the movie? I'm in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and so kind of at the same time that we have... Christopher Walken, Leo DiCaprio, that father-son dynamic. We also have this kind of found family sort of dynamic with Tom Hanks chasing Leonardo DiCaprio. And they kind of develop their own relationship as the years go on. Frank calls Carl every Christmas, and Carl's always at the office because he doesn't have a family to go to. Um, So I think that was one, uh, I think, a really compelling aspect of the movie that, you know, could have been very surface level con man does all these suave things, but we get a lot of time and I forgot how much time is devoted to seeing the Abigail family, their dynamics, the story of Frank senior being a world war II veteran, meeting his mother in a small French village and bringing her back to America. You know, his mom doesn't really get a whole lot of time in the movie, but what moments we do get, I think portray a really interesting dynamic. So I thought it was really cool having those two father-son dynamics moving forward. And in real life, Frank didn't see his father after he left around the divorce time. Uh, Seems to be when he was 17, he never saw his father again. His father died a few years later. When in the movie, we continue, you know, there's like multiple scenes where he goes back as he's living the con life to interact with his father. And I think that's a great, you know, moment to kind of, all right, the truth doesn't really matter. We want to see Frank Jr. interact with Frank Sr. as he's deeper and deeper and deeper into the con. And we kind of learn more about why Frank Jr., why he kind of really slipped naturally into this lifestyle because of how his father navigated his own way through society. And also becoming kind of a con man upon the realization that the 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 like tender and bonding familial atmosphere that he assumed to be the reality this this again mythologizing his father frank senior kind of like this this story that they always tell of how they met and all this stuff uh as a cover for a crumbling marriage kind of kind of realizing that frank kind of real frank jr leo dicaprio's character kind of realizing in real time that uh even 
the stories that he's built his his understanding of his family unit on are lies and how that invites this is deeply subjective version of what is true and what is not and muddies the moral waters of how one presents themselves and self-anthologizes and everything else yeah the the one scene where it feels like frank jr is trying to convince frank frank senior of the actual history of you were the one who found her and he's like i i i couldn't speak french there were 200 other people and yet it was me was it was it really like what 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 is the truth so who knows it who knows if anything in the entire movie is true yeah and i think what and that's, I mean, our, I feel like every family has those own kind of family secrets or family simplifications. And I really found myself, I guess, sympathize. I don't know, like really, I think, connect or drawn toward Frank Sr., uh, Christopher Walken, um, in a way that I didn't really quite remember him in my previous rewatches of the movie, but really found him interesting, especially when Frank does all these crimes, he's forging checks goes around the world cashing all these checks in other banks it's old school technology so they don't quite know oh he cashes a check in spain well when it gets cashed in america they actually you know then they realize it bounces but by then he's long gone that's kind of his con through most of the movie uh so as carl handratty the fbi agents investigating him he figured you know they figure out who you know it's frank abagnale jr he goes see his father and it's kind of this interesting uh adopted fbi hunter father meeting actual biological father and i think that's such a really compelling scene that never happened in real life but at least you know frank handrad you know that's he's a methodic kind of fictional character in and of himself but a really great while not having historical truth i think brings a lot of emotional truth to probably what would have been going on and that's a really compelling scene where frank senior says just let you know you know, you're not a father. I don't, you know, you're, are you a father? You know, I'm, you know, the fathers never give up their sons. That never happens. I thought that was a really um, rich and compelling scene. Yeah, I really like how the movie sets up uh, Tom Hanks's character and Christopher Walken's characters to kind of foil fathers. And you see Tom Hanks as the FBI agent. And also the fact that Tom Hanks is playing it too sort of invokes that character with that sort of fatherly uh, energy, you know, that Tom Hanks kind of brings. But it's like his sole pursuit is of Frank. And in many ways, Frank desires to be seen or, or to like belong and to sort of be witnessed and seen. And it's like in a weird way, the FBI detective is like, so attentive and is fixated on finding him but in a way it's like what frank desires to like have that feeling of of being uh of being watched and being yeah just attended to and in kind of a fatherly way that he wouldn't necessarily have have been able to to get from his own father but it's like through this weird cat and mouse detective fbi like pursuit <laughs> especially when it comes to the end i mean uh, not to jump ahead or, or bounce around here but like at the end when you know it, he's frank has basically been his sentence has been commuted because he's particularly good at detecting check fraud so he's brought into the fbi through carl and the one moment when frank has an opportunity to like run and get away tom hanks points out to him like look no one's chasing you and that ultimately is part of why he returns in the end and decides that it's not worth running anymore because what's the point? You know, if, if someone, if it's not about the chase, if it's not about getting one up on somebody and it's actually about being seen for my talents, then what's the use of it? I think that's a really great moment to transition to, you know, the meat of the movie is this cat and mouse game between Hanratty and Abingdale Jr. And I think that, you know, this is, we talked about this in our heist theme, like, this is the fun part of when you, like, have crime-focused movies, like, will he get away with it? How is he evading the cops? And I think this count and mask game is really interesting because it takes a lot of twists and turns, and a huge moment is when Handratty realizes that Frank's just a kid. He's able to pass as this 20-something, maybe even 30-something, you know, 
Um, nobody really knows how old he is, but then, oh, he has comic books. He's using the name Barry Allen. Um, he's just, he has all these snacks and he's just a kid. And so that there's a lot of really great moments with the cat and mouse where dynamic shift and dynamics change and power rises and power falls for the various characters. And I think that's one part. I think that's a lot of the thrust of what kept me engaged throughout the film. So how does everybody else feel about how the kind of cat and mouse crimey, you know, heisty dynamics were handled in Cash Me If You Can? It's interesting you point out that he didn't start forging checks until the 70s. Uh, in in truth, because uh, that is such a pivotal part of this cat and mouse game, uh, it is largely Carl kind of discovering this new way of forging checks and like bouncing them around the country as far as routing and stuff like that. And all those details are super interesting and really inventive. So to know that they're not true within the timeline of this movie is really interesting. I think it's another one of those cases of, you know, the Robert McKee attitude of like, uh, if if there's not drama, you have to insert the drama. So it does do that in a way that allows you to chart this cat and mouse game that while not accurate to how things actually played out is really riveting. Um, so I, I find it. Uh, yeah, I find it one of those allowances of uh, uh, taking uh, the biopic genre a little bit loosely to go in the right direction. Yeah, I would say it definitely helps to consolidate and condense some major events that happen in this real person's life for the sake of a better sort of story arc. Because something I think about in the genre of biopic is how much a movie chooses to cover in a person's life. And I think this usually happens when it's somebody who's like, super famous and iconic. And it's like, does the biopic want to play out beat for beat every stage in this person's life? I think this story is a little different because Frank Abagnale is not like a household name. And so I think that because he's not, the movie can like stick with story elements of his life that connect to the most exciting parts of his life. Like, and it can shape something and it can rearrange things like choosing to incorporate the check forging part of his life at from the very beginning to kind of build this thread and because it would have been real rough to try to stick to real chronology (laughs) and be like and then 10 years later he's forging checks and things like that it only covers what five four years Something like that, yeah. I think even just like two. Oh, three? Just like two or three. All before it's night three. Yeah, yeah, so like... Like two years. It just, it really condenses, and I think, in its favor. Which Frank, the real Frank, does as well to his own story. Kind of like mm-hmm. going back to what we talked about before. Go with me here. But you know when you're watching a nature documentary, and they're showing you... a polar bear or a whale in pursuit of a tiny penguin or a, a sea lion and you're like or or um not a sea lion a seal what's seal right yeah. a seal <laughs> or a sea lion sweet jesus uh <laughs> anyway um you're like oh my god this seal has to get away that poor penguin go 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 and then it escapes and you're so happy thank god and then the nature documentary pans back over to like an emaciated polar bear and you're like oh no <laughs> this, no, this polar bear will not be able to feed her cubs for the next two weeks yeah <laughs> you're like sweet Jesus, the, this movie does that too, where you're like, yeah, 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 we want Frank to get away. But then you see like the real moments when Carl is uh, like, he when he realizes he's been had, but the Secret Service wouldn't be a part of this type of thing, or he has to, to face the music with how he let him go in, in some other ways too. And you're like, oh shit, yeah, like I'm really rooting for this guy, but like also it's Tom Hanks and he's doing the best he can. And I think like, that's good. That's what you want from a, a, a movie like this where you want empathy on both sides, every character. And that's why the casting is awesome. You have Leonardo DiCaprio as this magnetic force, someone who's just so confident and can spin these lies 
um, at, at other people's expense, but you know, you kind of can't help but root for him because of his charm and his kind of like debonair attitude. But at the same time, you're seeing the consequences that it has not only on the people that he's interacting with, but on Tom Hanks, uh, Carl pursuing him. Um, and, and I think it would be really one-sided for me if it weren't for some of the complexity of like the third act, like Tom Hanks is sort of this force of like truth and is telling him like, listen, these lies, you're not going to be able to get away with this. You're lying. You're lying to people. And eventually that house of cards is going to fall. And he, he embodies that so totally because of like his stick to his sort of like stick in the mud attitude his moralistic um, dedication to truth. But then in the end, that one moment again, where he reveals that he's been lying to, uh, to Frank about some of the details of his own life and muddying the waters in between those two seemingly disparate poles of either like uh, a- abject fiction and self self mythology and, and a con man versus uh, a federal agent pursuing them in, in pursuit of the truth and the righteousness of that truth. But that Tom Hanks's character himself, uh, Carl still has to bend the truth in order to do that, which is, really dynamic i think the movie wouldn't have worked without that moment because it would have been too one-sided uh and to earn that at the end after setting it up for so long really makes it all the more uh complex in a lot of ways and i think the non-linear structure of the movie i think really plays into that of where it was a, what could have been a confusing mess of like jumping around in the story's timeline and in frank's life I think really you're, you know, the script smartly keys in on moments of where uh, when so Frank is ultimately, you know, he flees to France, he's arrested, he's kept in this really dirty, dungy French prison, and Handratty works to get him extradited to the United States, get him out of that prison. And Frank is, you know, feigned sickness, brought to a hospital, and he escapes while they're distracted. And this is pretty, I think, early on in the movie, and it's only halfway through, and you're like, oh, come on frank like so it's it's interesting seeing these moments pop up non-linearly and then you see how they kind of develop a really risky structure but one that's pulled off i think pretty expertly by screenwriter jeff nathanson yeah and with spielberg at the helm i mean it'd be hard for him to screw up most scripts he can and I was going to save it. To- yeah, there are a couple actually. Ready for one thinking the of what I'm or- thinking? Yes. <laughs> yeah, those I was are like, bad. I know Spielberg has a thing for airports, and he he does <laughs> it well Hanks. in. Yeah, he has a thing for Tom Hanks and airports, and he does it well in Catch Me If You Can, using that like um, I think it's the LaGuardia terminal that like was shut down, or maybe it's a JFK. I don't know. Either one at LaGuardia or JFK is that like mid-20th century uh, terminal that was shut down and abandoned. And it still has this really cool mid-century modern architecture, but they like don't know what to do with it. And I think there are efforts to try to renovate it and make it actually usable again. But that was a set they they used it for the movie, um, which, which was fun to see. But yeah, all that is to say... Spielberg, the terminal had no business ever being made. That movie's <laughs> really bad. Although this, you know, when he, when this movie came out, it was the same year that he also put out Minority Report, which is I think is a very good movie. So it's a hell of a year for Spielberg. One element of the cat and mouse game that I think stuck with me is, and we've, I think, touched on this, is this idea of like duality. Uh, there's this one really amazing scene um, of basically, you know, Carl Handratty, the personification of truth and justice. Um, and then Frank Abagnale Jr., the personification of just lying to kind of get your way through life, to try to make the best life for yourself at the expense of others. There's this great scene where Handratty is waiting at a laundromat to wash all of his white shirts, uh, FB, you know, his FBI uniform. Contrasts with Frank uh, basically paying Jennifer Garner to sleep with her. <laughs> Um, and this great contrasting scene of like the life of this 18 year old who's I believe he's abroad gonna sleep with Jennifer Gardner and Frank Handratty's shirts turned um, pink because of a red sock that was left in the washer and so I think that there's a lot of really interesting moments of duality between 
you know, at what price do we pay for following the truth? And then, you know, what, you know, what can be reaped from lying and ultimately the final outcome of living both of those lifestyles, I think is really interesting. And not for nothing, tying it to another DiCaprio movie, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, that dichotomy mm-hmm. between um, his character and the FBI guy pursuing him there, uh, how he has to just take the subway all the time or the bus or whatever. That that Yeah, that duality is present in other movies, but is, uh, is really capitalized on here to effect. So one other kind of just aspect I wanted to get into a little bit was the idea of like nostalgia baiting or 60s nostalgia. Um, you know, this movie, I think, is very sentimental for the more naive times of the 60s. Pan Am is like a huge part of like a mid-century American culture. The stewardess uniforms uh, when flying was still kind of more in the realm of like a novelty sort of thing. Christine, it's interesting you brought up that closed terminal in New York that where it's filmed with all that architecture um, is really interesting. Do you think that the nostalgia definitely plays into like the plot and the story of it but do you feel like that that kind of is it too heavy-handed or feels like an appropriate period piece so i guess i just kind of want to get your guys thoughts on catch me if you can as a 60s period piece i think for a movie in the year 2002 it's uh it's almost prescient like in its depiction of that the simplicity of that time in a way like i mean you know this con man who is going around just all that he does is say that he's a doctor and he forges documents and so on. Um, nowadays, there would be an entire digital footprint of a person's life and everything. So being a con man uh, is arguably not as easy as it was back in the 1960s, um, which I think, you know, not only plays into the narrative, but it plays into this sort of uh, hindsight, a portrayal of that era in a lot of ways, which is interesting. I think something I was also thinking about was like, like how I guess like the women characters in this movie, it feels like it's not so much nostalgic, but it doesn't really have much to say about like his relationship with women, either that uh, other than women are in his life or either betrayers like his mother or like sort of people to be used and to be wooed for his like own sort of, or for furthering his goals or fulfilling some sort of like ideal that he has of what the kind of life he wants. And so I guess I wouldn't say it was more sort of a critique. I don't think the movie is critiquing sixties sort of depictions of women. I think it's just sort of like falling into like an early aughts kind of like, these are kind of the women that move through his life. And these are the, basically the purposes they serve. So that was kind of one thing I was thinking about. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that's so much nostalgia as it is just like a, a screenplay that isn't quite concerned about like the characterizations of women uh, in, yeah. Agreed, yeah. I almost want like a, a Zoomer's opinion on this. I Because I do think that there is some nostalgia, even like for us growing up, I, I remember going on a plane for the first time and getting those like little wings from the pilot, but like post nine 11, I, I, I don't know how often that kind of stuff happened. And cause cause my experiences happened way before. Uh, so I would be interested to see how that has changed because of such a, like a, a event culturally significant event. Um, or it doesn't matter at all. Who knows? This is 02. I guess uh, it had time to think about it. <laughs> yeah, filming happened in spring of 2001. Oh, so, right. kind of, so filmed Touché. before 9-11, which is interesting. That's, that is interesting. Because, yeah, if anything, I would have been... If someone told me that, like, the airline industry, like, paid Spielberg to kind of, like, rebrand, <laughs> I wouldn't that night. Like, I would believe it. <laughs> and... That's how we got also the terminal, but um, which it does, it does feel like that movie feels like Spielberg's attempt at a post 9-11 conversation. That movie's a response <laughs> to 9-11, yeah. Way wrong. Yeah, <laughs> but that this is gone. that's interesting that this movie was shot before. But yeah. Man, like yeah. obviously we're not zoomers because all roads lead in conversation back to 9-11. <laughs> 
that's so true. <laughs> oh, that's too sad. It's too, too funny, too sad. Well, one other kind of point, I guess, tied to the 60s vibe I wanted to talk about was the uh, the music and the, the intro animation. Intro animation was pretty obviously inspired by Saul Bass's um, pretty legendary animated intros for m- many films, including uh, a lot of Hitchcock movies. Uh, this retro opening sequence was designed by a French duo, Olivier Kunzel and Florence Degas. How I believe you pronounce those names. And I thought that was a really fun way to kind of kick off the movie, a really great tone piece for the kind of adventure, cat and mouse adventure we're going to go on, and introducing kind of like in a play, in a musical, thematic overtures that are going to repeat um, throughout the film. And I think that this Catch Me If You Can has a great score. And I think it's set up really wonderfully in the first couple minutes with this old school animated introduction. John Williams, baby, doing that score. And also, mm-hmm. yeah, seeing that uh, animatic at the beginning, I really did think to myself, like, boy, this is like a little, like, it felt like a little, like, too broad. Like, it was kind of like, it's just capturing the feel of that era. But then it specifically, you know, throughout the movie ties into the con man aspect of James Bond and it being co- pretty comparable to a lot of, like, early Bond kind of, like, openings. So I found that animatic ultimately justified. Although at first I was kind of like rolling my eyes, so it it did it did it does ultimately earn it, yeah. Yeah, that that bond connection is interesting in the sort of self mythologizing uh, aspect of the movie. Oh, you know, Frank definitely thought he was James Bond, and I guess the same suit yeah. and is doing the impersonation while he's getting fitted at the tailors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So cringy. How about that scene with the checks? How about that scene in France? What an incredible scene. Um, easily my favorite part of the movie. And he, it definitely when both Hanks and DiCaprio are on fire in this movie. Uh, it's a confrontation where Frank, or excuse me, uh, where Carl has traced the checks that are now being passed by Frank internationally to this specific place, not only because of where the printing presses are, but because it ties to the story of the mythos of where his parents met and the import of that. Um, which is kind of what gives him away. Carl goes there and is seemingly walking in, as the film presents, on his own to go apprehend him. Uh, Immediately, Frank DiCaprio is, like, questioning this and, and, like, saying, like, oh, this is a total scam. You wouldn't come here on your own. And he's like, uh, Carl's like, well, no, I didn't come here on my own. I'm coming here to, like, bring you out and negotiate with the French police. And if you go out there, they're going to kill you. And Frank is just like, no, I'm not falling for this, blah, blah, blah. Really illustrating those two characters. Um, you know, Hanks being sort of this beacon of, again, we've talked about how it's a little compromised toward the end, but at that time, a beacon of this like objective truth, even when dealing with someone he's pursuing versus how Frank's practice of manipulation, of being a con man, of, of paranoia, of being found out, of trying to sniff out other people's game and how they could be getting one up on him has caused him to be so paranoid that he is not receiving Hanks genuinely telling him like, look, you're going to die. And him, the, the tension of that is, is fantastic. There's also just this one amazing detail that when all these checks are flying around in the air and he shouts, Merry Christmas, which is fantastic. One of the checks perfectly falls on DiCaprio's head and stays there, which I'm sure was a happy accident, but is fantastic. And I think that scene is firing on all cylinders, costuming. Carl's in his full suit. Frank is just in like a wife beater and slacks. Like and we've sweaty, never yeah. seen. Yeah, and sweaty. We've never seen him disheveled. He's whether it's in his school uniform all the way back in the beginning of the movie. Even going to public from private to public school, um, he wears his you know fancy private school uniform. He wears the pilot suit, the James Bond. Like now he's disheveled. Even the framing, like Tom Hanks, very calmly walks through. For so much of the movie, Frank's had the metaphorical high ground. Now in this scene, he has the literal high ground as he's by these machines, a level above Carl. But then as the power dynamic shift within the scene itself he disembarks from um you know climbs down from where the machinery is to be on level with 
uh, Carl, and I think it's just really wonderful. Uh, framing, staging, costuming, and writing uh, all kind of colliding in this scene set to the backdrop of a French choir singing Christmas carols. This is such, and that is so calculated. Now that you <laughs> mentioned it was released on Christmas Day, every oh, this sure. movie is not a Christmas movie, but it definitely is in like, definitely towards the end, like when he goes to see this fan or his fan or like his mom and the new family, the like snowy French check scene and the fucking choir. And, and it's he, like, this is so Frank calculated to be a fucking Christmas movie. <laughs> and he calls Frank every Christmas. Every night. Christmas. Yeah. 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 It's a screaming Christmas, but not Christmas. And how wonderful it is also in that, the one exchange when he calls them on Christmas the first time. And uh, ultimately Hanks uh, is kind of like laughing at uh, DiCaprio saying like, like, Oh, you had no one else to call like that. His house of cards that he built has established that he, he can't really truly trust or invest himself in anyone. But at the same time, Hanks himself is just sitting there on Christmas Eve working because he's disenfranchised from his own family how they are two sides of the same coin. And uh, going back to, yeah, the check scene is, it, it, again, uh, Frank being so caught up in uh, his paranoia about having to get one up on everyone and faced with Tom Hanks's objective truth, it, it, it becomes a moment where Frank has to acknowledge that via the living personification of objective truth that is Tom Hanks, it's like this house of house of cards cannot last. This is going to kill you. You need to trust me because I'm telling you the truth. And then when they go out, the big reveal, they go out into the courtyard. There's the French choir still singing and there's no French police. And uh, even then, still convinced that this is him. Uh, Hank's getting one up over on DiCaprio. DiCaprio turns to him and says, uh, really good, Carl, really good. And then because... Hanks is telling the truth. A swarm of French police swarm in. This is a fantastic moment that says a whole lot with very little. And while it's not historically true, it's like <laughs> the best scene. It's the best scene in the movie. Easily. And so yeah. I think like at the end of the day, that's if a biopic can be emotionally resonant, speak to thematic emotional truths does it really matter what's true or false unless it's propagating some kind of white supremacist lie? <laughs> you know, like that's, you know, at that point, we'll see like, in a couple weeks, but yeah, go on. <laughs> but that like, you know, of course there is a line where manipulating the truth is evil, but in the case of like a con man biopic, like, does it really matter if it the couldn't be more fitting? Presented? Yeah. Ex exactly. So I, I think, Serendipi serendipitously catch me if you can was a really great just by coincidence first pick to kind of kick off a biopic theme um i think because of just the meta levels the storytelling the story itself um and just a really fun movie to talk about and wants a lot of layers to kind of dive deep into any final thoughts on catch me if you can biopics i'm sure we'll have a lot more to say on biopics throughout the next couple of weeks uh but any kind of final thoughts as we're wrapping up our first uh biopic feature or biopic for the theme revisit it check it out uh i i remember it being good and it was better than i remembered so um if you're like me then uh it'll be a thumbs up each time uh and definitely recommend checking out kendall ray's video on youtube about frank Abagnale jr it's a really great deep dive into um, his life and his lies. Um, and then kind of even talks a little bit about his relationship with the movie. Uh, before we bounce, I wanted to just talk about a few kind of interesting behind the scenes aspects of Catch Me If You Can. So for, I think about over a decade, I think the late 80s, Frank Abagnale Jr. sold the film rights to his story. And so it was in kind of like production, just limbo for a long time uh spielberg it seems like pretty early on like in the mid 90s was attached as a producer um for the film with dreamworks you know he co-founded dreamworks so dreamworks bought the rights and so he was you know more or less attached to the film for a lot of its pre-production history uh in april of 2000 um so there were a lot of directors who were attached to this including david fincher who in april 2000 about it you Ooh. know let's say nine months before filming 
was supposed to kind of start. Fincher was attached to direct the film, but he ultimately dropped out in favor of directing Panic Room. Uh, then in July of 2000, Leonardo DiCaprio entered discussions to star with Gore Verbinski to direct. Uh, Spielberg uh, was signed on as a producer. And so filming was supposed to start March of 2001. So I maybe retract what I said earlier. Maybe it was filmed closer to 9-11 or later, maybe early 2002. Uh, Ver- Verbinski cast James Gandolfini as Carl Handratty and Ed Harris as Frank Abagnale Sr., so a really interesting alternate reality uh, version. Wait, how old would James Gandolfini? Wait, James Gandolfini as junior or father? As Carl as Carl Handratty, and then Ed Harris as FBI agent, and then Ed Harris oh, as Frank's dad. With Leo, got it. Got it. <laughs> I was imagining <laughs> Gandolfini Tony as Tony young Soprano Frank. Junior. <laughs> I love Gandolfini, but I don't know that he would have had. I, I don't know that he would have embodied it quite the right way. Ed Harris uh, as a swap for Christopher Walken. Interesting, maybe, but I don't know. An interesting alternate reality. I would love to see a trailer from that universe where that film got made with Fincher direct or Gore Verbinski directing with Gandolfini and Ed Harris. That would have been interesting. In Fincher's hands, um, this could have been really cool too. Actually, now that you mention it, yeah. It would have been darker, and that would have been fun. Uh, During the negotiation period, Spielberg began to consider directing the film for himself. Um, Eventually, he actually backed away from projects like Big Fish, which we talked about a couple years ago, and also backed away from Memoirs of a Geisha. I didn't quite realize that he was slated to direct that movie or interested in directing that movie. Uh, This is all according to Wikipedia, folks. Um, Spielberg officially committed to directing in August of 2001, uh, the same month that Tom Hanks was cast to replace Gandolfini. Um, James Gandolfini had to exit due to scheduling conflicts with Sopranos because production kept getting pushed and pushed. Uh, Gore Verbinski left because Leonardo DiCaprio had to delay the time that production could start because of Gangs of New York. Took longer. Uh. Like he had to, that production got delayed so they had to delay cash if you can it's a really interesting web of directors and actors and maybes and you know kind of intersecting with this role and spielberg pitched it to hanks and assumed that hanks would say no because it was a supporting role but tom hanks said a good part's a good part and i want to play a good part so kind of <laughs> interesting again stay tuned <laughs> so at least in 2001 and when filming began in 2001, or maybe 2002, that was uh, at least Tom Hanks' perspective. <laughs> so I just thought that was a really interesting insight into the behind-the-scenes kind of pre-production of Catch Me If You Can. Oh, well, I think with that, let's wrap up Catch Me If You Can. This was a really awesome discussion. Thank you, all my co-hosts, for your insights. Let us know what you think about Catch Me If You Can, or if you disagreed with our in- insightful comments or thought they weren't that insightful by sending us an email at butterwiththatpodcast at gmail.com. Please uh, don't send us emails about how we weren't insightful. That'll be very rude. Yeah, I want to, Thomas, if you're out there, I want to hear your hot take on both Catch Me If You Can and our assessments of Catch Me If You Can. Thomas left an amazing review for 1917. If folks, you should really listen to the end of that episode to hear his scathing <laughs> review of 1917. And I think pretty accurate review. <laughs> so um, accurate. And so uh, we should check to see if he left a review for Cash Me If You Can. Maybe he has real insight into the check industry and banking regulations. Probably. Uh, maybe he also. I'm from Michigan, so I would know. <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot a lot of banks in Michigan. There wasn't a lot of milk in Catch Me If You Can. I don't think I can approve of it. <laughs> but Frank Jr. does order milk. Oh, he orders milk. You're right. He orders milk. That was such a kid. sad moment. She was like, do you want it? When um, Meredith Grey, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, Papeo, yeah, and yeah. she's like, do you want to drink? And he's like, milk. <laughs> it's like, oh. So if you want to hear all about our milk takes, continue to follow Butter With That on Instagram, on Facebook at Butter With That, Twitter, Butter With That One. We've never posted a single tweet, but follow us there. Maybe one, like four years ago. Wait a minute. Uh, We 
did have something because about Don's mom. <laughs> correspondence with Dale Wheatley, yeah. Oh, you're right. I'm yeah. so sorry. <laughs> Which oh, actually, Sam, oh. uh, I guess you're our arbiter of the, the Twitter feed. You did make a comment that is uh, apologizing uh, for his responses. Like, well, it wasn't a production nightmare. We had a great time. And your response was like something to the effect of like, well, we're just uh, pulling from Wikipedia. So don't take it us to heart. I researched the shit out of that episode. It wasn't just Wikipedia. <laughs> no, no, no. I just didn't want him to be pissed. And then he was like, I'll come on your podcast and talk about it. And I was like, yeah, ah. we're not doing that. Sorry, Dale. No. <laughs> he did have a serious talk about it, but yeah, no. I don't think so. he's got his website. It's fine. So apologies to our Twitter base. We, yeah, we do have many tweets. I do apologize. And probably our most infamous interaction is on there. <laughs> Man, I kind of lost the thread of where we're going. We've been recording for a long time tonight. So I yeah, say this let's, is, uh, uh, this is about hour uh, four, I think now, right? Yeah, we started at seven, really seven forty-two. I think. Oh, okay, I remember. So close. Have a good whatever, everybody. Enjoy the rest of biopics. You're gonna hate us by the end of it, but stick with us. This has been a Movie John podcast. <laughs>